Looks like the kids already fled, didn't they? <laughs> All right. Well, Merry Christmas. It is uh, it's a blessing to be here with you, and um, I've got to confess, Friendship Community Church, I have nothing fancy for you today, nothing fancy or new, but something as powerful, I hope, as it is old. I just want us to open our Bibles this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, to Isaiah chapter 9 and marvel at the Christ of Christmas. I got to tell you, I have just cried and cried with this text on my lap all week, just the wonder of what God has done for us. Um, granted, I've also thrown up a lot and uh, <laughs> spent quite a bit of time doubled over. It's been a week. Uh, some of you can relate. The sickness is going around. Uh, so sick. But uh, by the way, uh, related to that sickness, I just want to say thank you to all here at Friendship Community Church who are just so kind and, and fellowship and their generosity, praying for one another, folks on the prayer chain, people delivering meals, uh, sending words of encouragement. Uh, keep it up, church. Uh, it, it matters when you care for one another, and uh, we, we have been recipients of your generosity and your kindness Thank you, and, and a special thanks to Benjamin and Ruth Ann, who have really picked up my slack uh, from a very busy ministry week. You don't plan on getting sick on Christmas week as a pastor, uh, and it's such a blessing to work with good and faithful people. All right, Isaiah 9. Uh, if you're using our church, uh, church Bible and the seat backs in front of you, it can be found on page 536. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's pray. Just go to the Lord and ask for his help one more time, and then we'll read this glorious text. Father, your words before us and your spirit is alive within us, those who have trusted in Christ savingly. And we plead with you now uh, that you would open our eyes to behold your goodness, to see Christ and to have him magnified in our lives, every nook and cranny of our lives this Christmas season. Lord, as we, uh, as we lean into your word now, we ask, as we often do, that you guard us from error and guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read together. Isaiah 9, we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it 
with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's infallible and errant word to us, His people. Well, here we have it, Isaiah 9, one of the clearest and most compelling pictures in all of the Old Testament that looks ahead to the birth of the Christ child. After all, isn't that what we're here to celebrate? For to us, a child is born, a a son is given. And this Christmas prophecy, this to us, a child is born passage is so good, it's so glorious that it should make our souls want to sing out as our lips already have this morning, Hail, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Now, as the Holy Spirit gives this incredible revelation of the coming Christ of the Messiah, he begins here in Isaiah 9 by telling us what he will do. That's his focus on verses 1 to 5. What he, this Christ child, will do. And then in verses 6 to 7, the focus shifts from what this Christ will do when he comes to who he is, his nature and his, his character. And the whole thing starts with a seismic reversal. Look back with me, if you will, in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, we got to make sure we're looking at this passage in its broader context, otherwise we're going to miss the fact that this whole thing begins with a massive pivot, a massive turnaround. It's like Christmas whiplash here at the beginning of Isaiah 9. Go ahead, look at the verse immediately before Isaiah 9.1 at the, the last verse of chapter 8. What's in store for these unfaithful people of God? What we see here, gloom of anguish and thick darkness. Yikes. So, the Holy Spirit here in Isaiah 9 is is looking ahead to a complete about face. God himself is going to reverse the fortunes of his people. They're going from gloom of darkness to glorious light. So you got to ask yourself, I think, this Christmas question. Why? why? Why the change? I mean, do you see some great repentance here on the part of these people, on the part of Zebulun and Naphtali? If you look carefully, I, I don't think you'll find it there. Not an ounce of repentance, not, not a glimmer of change on their part. They're in darkness because they had broken faith. They had broken covenant with their God. In other words, this people deserved their darkness. They had earned their gloom. A fact that's not lost upon this Zebulun, I might add. And yet, how is it that in the midst of this gloom of utter darkness, they end up receiving this resplendent light? Well, listen, friends, this is the message of Christmas and of Christianity for that matter, it's not that good things come to those who deserve them. Sorry, Santa. It's that that God's grace brings life and light to a people who deserve their own darkness. 
Now, a helpful note about the geography here, just what you wanted on Christmas, a geography lesson. Zebulun and Naphtali are two northern tribes in Israel. They're located in the region around the Sea of Galilee, a a region which would originally or eventually come just to be known as Galilee, especially in the first century when we read our New Testaments uh, with Jesus' arrival. Now, you want to make a wild guess as to where the majority of Jesus' upbringing and earthly ministry was focused? Yeah, the region of Galilee. But more specifically, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Probably just a coincidence though, right? What's more, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus did this on purpose. He intentionally picked the place to base his earthly ministry so that this prophecy right here in Isaiah 9 would be fulfilled. We'll give you the the New Testament proof text, Matthew 4, verses 13 to 16. I'll just read it out for you. And leaving Nazareth, he, meaning Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Ding, 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 ding. So that purpose statement, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see it? Jesus did it on purpose. Jesus moves his physical base of ministry to Capernaum right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee so that into the midst of the darkness of Zebulun and the gloom of Naphtali, the light of the world steps in and breaks through. Isn't it marvelous? It's as if Jesus is saying, Merry Christmas! I'm here. I'm the one you've been longing for. I am the one Isaiah was pointing to. Man, oh man, even the where, even the geography of Jesus' ministry speaks to his lordship. It's amazing. God's word is amazing. Now, not surprisingly then, we find next in verse 3, this picture of resonant gladness. It's just ringing out everywhere. This joy just bubbles up over verse 3. Go ahead, count them up in verse 3. The number of references, if you can, if you're following along, Isaiah 9, the number of references to joy or rejoicing or gladness, I count four in, in one little verse. Four instances of of joy, rejoicing, or gladness. You have increased its joy, the nation's joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. They're glad as when they divide the spoil. Joy's just spilling out everywhere. Joy, the Holy Spirit likens it to cashing in all their toil and their hard work at harvest time. That, that kind of joy. Joy like the victory that comes in, in battle when you're collecting the spoils. Why such joy? Well, the very next word in verse 4 gives us another statement of purpose. It's the little word for. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. 
purpose of all this joy? Well, they've got light. They were in darkness and gloom. Light has shone upon them. Now they're, they're bubbling up with joy because they've been free. They've been delivered from their oppression, from their, from their bondage. This is what verse 4 is, is pointing us to. And this burden has been absolutely crushing. Now, God is prophesying that there's coming a day when He will break the, the rod and the staff of their oppressors and throw off their heavy yoke. Let's think about that for a minute. Maybe there's some familiar language here in Isaiah 9 that you've breezed by in the past as you've read this Christmassy verse before. Do you recognize that rod and staff language from anywhere? Yeah, right. That's shepherd's talk, isn't it? Like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. His rod and his staff, they, they, they comfort me. Shepherd's equipment, a rod and a staff. And then we get Jesus showing up on the scene in John 10 saying, yeah, that shepherd's stuff, that's about me. I am, he calls himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And don't forget this yoke language either that we encounter here in verse um, 3 and 4. This heavy burden that's been laid upon them is finally going to be broken. And Jesus, too, just like he assumes the, the, the shepherd's mantle, Jesus, too, steps in and deals with this yoke language when he arrives on the scene in the first century. He says about himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, and what he comes to do, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's gathering all of the fodder of Isaiah 9, and, and when he's living and walking through his earthly ministry, he's, he's systematically showing through what he does and says, that he is this one. That he is the embodiment of Isaiah 9. He's setting out to demonstrate that he is the one we've been waiting for all this time. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Now, some of you might be scratching your head at verse 4. There's this interesting line. What's up with the, as in the days of Midian line? That might be a reference that some of us are, are unfamiliar with. Well, the days of Midian is a reference to a high watermark of God's deliverance in the book of Judges, specifically Judges chapter 7. You remember the story of Gideon? Tough crowd. Uh, uh, up late wrapping presents, huh? The story of Gideon, that, that, that's exactly what this reference is being made to here. The, the victory that God wrought over Midian was mind-blowingly awesome. And there really, it, it sets itself apart as a victory that only God could accomplish. I mean, the odds, if you want to take some time this Christmas season and read through Judges chapter 7 again, the odds of God overcoming the victory against his people are just staggering. There ends up being 
in the story of Gideon and his deliverance against the, the Midianite overlords, 450 Midianite soldiers for every one Israelite soldier. How'd you like to fight that one? 450 Midianite soldiers for every single Israelite soldier. There's 300 measly soldiers. And God wins an overwhelming victory that day. I mean, it just makes your mind kind of cough and sputter and quit. Who can do that but God? And that's exactly the point here, isn't it? The point is that this kind of victory that God is going to pull off here in Isaiah 9 through this coming Savior is a supernatural work of God where the only explanation can be God did it. God did it. That, that's, that's what's going on with the as in the days of Midian line. No other explanation than that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth won the victory. Now, if we keep tracking through in verse 5, I think we find that verse 5 often gets the snub here uh, as we're reading through at Christmas time in Isaiah 9. Uh, after all, it's a, it's a little bit hard to wrap our minds around. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, it's actually here, verse 5 is just a continuation of the point Isaiah's been making up to now. The point that violence and bloodshed is now over. You can, you can throw off that bloody battle garb and toss it into the fire, Isaiah is saying, by, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, because of God's deliverance that's coming. What's in store for you is light and peace and salvation, not the oppression, not the bloodshed that you've known up to this point. It's... Uh, part of the, the fabric of deliverance here that we see in verse 5. All right, before we move on and turn the corner into verse 6, let's, let's stop. We'll just press the pause button for a minute and just consider the sheer weight of what God has promised so far here in this text. God's people are going from gloom to glory. That's verse 1. God's people are being taken from darkness to light. That's verse 2. God's people are going from their desperate and meager reality to joy and, and growth and increase. Verse 3. From the yoke of oppression to freedom and victory. Verses 4 and 5. I mean, this is bonkers. This is, this is gospel stuff. This is good news beyond comparison. So then, how? How will God pull off such a radical turnaround for his pathetic, beat-up people here? Well, his action plan is highlighted right here in verse 6 and following. There's one more four, one more great purpose statement here in Isaiah 9, and we see we encounter the Savior Verse 6, for, here's how he's going to do it, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God's plan, church, is a person. 
It always has been a person. And not just any old person, a baby, a child is going to be born. You see, from the very moment that creation was corrupted by sin and descended into curse and chaos, the whole created order has been longing, it's been yearning, it's been waiting for what? A a child, a seed, an offspring. Isn't that what God had promised? It's, It's what God had said from the very moment of the curse. When, when the wheels fell off the bus of humanity and when humankind rebelled against God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God justly separated Himself from His people. And yet even in the midst of the curse and all that it entailed, He gave that glorious gospel promise that from the seed of the woman... That offspring would would crush the head of the serpent, humanity's mortal foe, Satan himself. And then echoed again and again and again all throughout the Scriptures. Until this very moment, God continues to tell us about this coming child who's going to fix it all. This coming child who's going to deliver and make right what sin and, and humanity's rebellion has has made so wrong. By the way, how many of you have been reading that uh, Christmas devotional that we distributed earlier this year? You guys enjoying that from Chad Ashby? What a, what a wonderful tool that's been, hopefully to, to stir up your affections for Christ and help you to see throughout the Old Testament this longing that God's people have had as they were been anticipating this promised child that was always God's plan. Is, is this the one? Could, could this be the one over and over and over again? Remember God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. And then to David in 2 Samuel 7 that a, that a son, a, a child from his line would establish an everlasting kingdom. And then just a few chapters before we're reading now in Isaiah 9, God had promised to Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive a child. What? A son. And that they would call his name Emmanuel. You see the building, the building, the building of God's promise the hope of all the nations, the everlasting King of kings, the serpent-stomping Savior, this is the Christ of Christmas. This is the child that Isaiah 9 is pointing to, the miracle child conceived by God's Spirit in the womb of a virgin. This, friends, is Christmas. Verse 6 continues, the government... The government shall be on the child's shoulders. Translation, he will be ruler. He will be Lord. He will be the sovereign master over all. And notice what Jesus himself declares after he pays the penalty for our sins on that wooden tree, buried in the tomb for three days, rises in victory over sin and death, 
And then before he ascends to heaven, what's he proclaim to his followers? He says, all authority. If you're here at Friendship Community Church and this is home base for you, you hear this quite a bit. Jesus says, all authority, every ounce of authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? The government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, what we see next here in this glorious Christmas passage is four names, these fourfold names given to this child. These four names are descriptive names. Names in Scripture often reveal uh, the, the nature or the character of the one being named. And, and we see the first name we encounter for this child, the Wonderful Counselor. Oh, the wisdom of this promised child. He'll be the very embodiment of wisdom such that the nations and the peoples will flock to Him seeking to, to know Him and to grow in the counsel of His wisdom for all eternity. His counsel, so high, so sublime, so otherworldly. It's a wonder. That's, that's one way to translate that. And instead of wonderful counselor, wonder of a counselor. There's, there's no word for, for supernatural in the, in the Hebrew text, and this word is about as close as you can get. A high and, and wonderful, uh, otherworldly counselor filled with wisdom. Indeed, he is wisdom. I like to think about that time when the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus, but then the officers come back empty-handed. You know the excuse they gave to the chief priests? They're like, where is he? John chapter 7, verse 46, their answer was, no one ever spoke like this man. What happened? The guys who went to arrest Jesus heard his counsel. They heard his wisdom, and they were overwhelmed. They, they just, we can't, no one ever spoke like this man. He'll be a wonder of a counselor. The next name we encounter here is, is, is Mighty God. And, and golly, I don't know, that's, that's very hard to decipher what's going on here. This child, Isaiah tells us, will be divine in some mysterious and glorious way. We know there's only one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. And He didn't share His glory with anyone. And yet this child is going to bear God's very name, his very nature, his very character. We see here the, the beauty of the Trinity just being hinted at here in, in Isaiah 9. He is God, very God, the God-man, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. It's the third name we encounter for this child. How can the child be, be the everlasting father? Well, the image of a father in Scripture is, is one who protects. The image of a father is one who cares for his own, one who lovingly disciplines them, one who governs his people with, with kindness and care. And after all, this shouldn't surprise us. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus, the everlasting son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 
So this divine son to be given is going to be to his people like a father. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and lastly, prince of peace. Now, a prince at this time, I think it's helpful to know, was often seen as a royal administrator, someone with the power to execute on on royal matters. So this child being put forth, is being put forth here as the dispenser of peace, as the sovereign source, the the wellspring, the, the distributor of God's divine shalom. Now, peace isn't merely an absence of conflict. We're certainly not talking about some kind of mushy, sicky, sweet feeling that we conjure up within ourselves. Peace is often achieved, interestingly enough, and maintained by great force, by great power. You heard of the Pax Romana, the peace superimposed by Rome with an iron fist? How could, how could Rome have such a period of peace? Because they had the power, they had the might to force the peace and to pull it off. This isn't a mamby-pamby kind of peace, friends. The peace that this Prince of Peace comes to bring comes with great force, great power. Colossians 1.20, he has made peace. He secured peace by the blood of His cross. What a cost this peace has come at. That Hebrew word here in Isaiah 9 is that word for shalom. It's this deep, it is well with my soul reality where where all aspects of life are rightly aligned with with God, your maker, your creator, your, your sustainer. And this child is the divine dispenser. He is indeed the prince of God's peace. I think it's fair for us to come up for air and echo that line again in, in glorious exaltation before the Lord. Hail, the heaven-born prince of peace. What a great line for us to sing. This peace, we see, is inextinguishable. You can't put it out. His government, his peace, will never have an end. Isn't that what verse 7 says? No end to his government. No end to his peace. How long is he seated on David's throne? Forever. That's that's what we see. Forever he's seated on David's throne. After all, isn't that what the angel declared from the very throne room of God to a trembling Virgin Mary that first Christmas as he laid out, pre-Christmas I guess, as he laid out the plans for the birth of the Christ. This resplendent angel, Gabriel himself, sent from the very presence of God, shows up to Mary and says in Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There it is. The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Sounds like the angels just kind of taking a page from Isaiah's book. Because it's God's book. It's the Christ's book. Over David's throne forever. Now, at Christmas time, we are want to dream big and have all these uh, grand plans and, and dreams and, and feelings. And, and, and here, some of us might be tempted as we're working our way through to the end of this passage in Isaiah 9 about the coming of the Christ just to say, ah, too much. Is this too good to be true? How in the world can these inconsistent, stiff-necked people from Zebulun and Naphtali and the the broken, sinful nation of Israel, how, how can this be their lot? How can, how can this ever be pulled off in the end? Well, the answer here comes screaming at us by way of a promise. And it is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I like how Dale Ralph Davis says it. We we're fond of Davis around here. He says, God's zeal is his hot and holy energy to get things done. It's Yahweh's burning passion to pull off his plans. Translation, this plan here about the coming Messiah and all that he will do is invincible. It's fail-proof. Why? Well, because the all-powerful, omnipotent God of angel armies is the one who's going to see it through. He's the, he's the Lord of hosts. He's Yahweh of hordes. He governs the armies of heaven. And He is zealous for His plan. And He will surely bring it to pass. He has surely brought it to pass. Friends, this is Christmas. I, uh, I hope that you're encouraged that the, the story of the birth of Christ and all that flows from it, all that He is and all that He will do, doesn't hinge upon our faithfulness or our deservedness. It's not about how hard we cling to Jesus this Christmas season. It's about His grace to pursue and save a people out of love out of love. I've been listening to this song uh, that was derived from an old poem this Christmas season by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Some of you have heard it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a, uh, one of the great American prophets, uh, excuse me, not prophets, <laughs> great American poets, I stand corrected, and uh, he was struggling one Christmas to make sense of the ringing bells on Christmas. Struggling as he thought about the message of Christmas and what it entailed. Struggling to believe that there could be peace on earth. He had lost two wives, one through complications of a miscarriage earlier in his life. Lost the child and the wife. Another later on through a gruesome house fire. 
And as the civil war raged around him, his son had been paralyzed in the war and the carnage of all the death and destruction was around him. He wrote the words, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sometimes that's our experience, isn't it? We look around and we, we see the unblushing promises of God's Word before us. And then we sit in our mess and we try to reconcile the pain that we're working through that we see all around us. And like Wadsworth Longfellow, we say, I can't see peace here. No peace on earth. And as he continues to work his way through the song, by the, by, through the poem, by the grace of God, he ends it this way. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Why? Because God has brought peace on earth and goodwill to men. And he's done it through Jesus. This is Christmas. Whatever your Christmas season has brought you, uh, I've, I've coughed my way here. I don't know how, about, how, how some of you are doing this Christmas season. It's like some of us, uh, as I'm looking across the room, seem like you've rode in Christmas season on a comet trail of tinsel and joy, and, and others have maybe got dragged behind the Polar Express, hitting every bump along the way, skidding into Christmas. The truth is, friends... Christmas is not really about your experience and nothing to do with how you feel or even in the microcosm of your own life or experience what you can make sense of. The joy, the hope, the peace of Christmas is that a child has been born. The child who was promised from the beginning the child who will crush the head of the serpent. He has crushed the head of the serpent. The government will rest on this child's shoulder. This one who says, all power and authority is mine. The one who showed up, the light breaking through in the darkness. The one who has given peace to our weary and restless hearts. We're here we sing, we pray, we, we give, we serve here at Friendship Community Church. Not because it feels right, not because we've got enough margin that it makes sense. Not because we're checking a box so that God can show us some good. We're here because Jesus Christ is the God-man. And He stooped down from heaven and cloaked himself in the flesh of humanity and lived that perfect life. True Israel, the true offspring of Abraham, the true everlasting king to sit on David's throne and being God, very God, in love. He died for you and me. This was the purpose of Christmas. This is the peace 
that we carry in Christmas. And so as we continue this Christmas season and as we prepare to close with this song one more time, I just want us to rally in our heads around that phrase one more time. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Oh, His name is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now and we say thank You. Thank You for all You've done. Thank You for who You've shown Yourself to be in the Scriptures. The one we've been waiting for all this time. The, the seed, the offspring, the promised one. The one who's given light to our darkness. The one who's banished our gloom. The one who's freed us and, and, and ladled over our lives for all eternity. Joy and blessing. You, Christ, the wonderful Counselor. The mighty God. Everlasting Father. Our Prince of Peace. Would you today be magnified in our lives? Would you today take claim over all affection? Would you be the highest priority for us as we're moving through this Christmas season, as we take time to to celebrate family and to eat good food and to fellowship with one another? God, help us not to lose sight of your peace purchased for us through your Son. We love you, God. And we give you all the praise and all of the glory this Christmas season. Hail, Jesus, the heaven-born Prince of Peace. We pray in your name. Amen. Would you please stand?